Well, good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining me tonight for uh, class session three on the two towers. I actually was not 100% sure that I was going to make it back home uh, tonight. Uh, this afternoon, I, uh, I, I uh, took part in a very long-standing tradition, and I took my 10-year-old son to see his first Red Sox game at Fenway Park, uh, which is very exciting. Uh, and uh, it was, I, was, I was thinking about uh, dreams and legends springing to life out of the grass uh, as we were there uh, at the game. Um, and actually kind of reflecting on the fact that actually, you know what I really like most about sports, and one of the primary reasons I am a sports fan is that it's one of the only places I find in modern culture where the kind of heroic narratives uh, which Tolkien so loved and which I really love um, actually still are popular um, and where we, we really, I guess, you know, there are other places in films and stuff, but it's a, it's, a, it's, it's a really dominant part of the culture and it's one that I find really fascinating. So anyway, um, however, uh, the, um, th there was a much more uh, a, a, a much more early medieval Germanic uh, uh, sort of tone to the heroic narrative at Fenway Park this afternoon as they fell down to miserable defeat, uh, but they went down nobly, uh, and uh, that would have been the perfect, uh, the perfect ending. Anyway, welcome again to <laughs> the Two Towers class, uh, and today I wanted to start off by finishing up um, the, uh, the, our discussion of the Ents and the Entwives, and uh, if you uh, have watched or listened to or got to attend the, our second class, uh, you know that we kind of came right up to the end of the time and I kind of whipped out on the Ents and the Entwives. So I wanted to come back to them a little bit. The question that I was, uh, that I was sort of confronting there at the end of class is, what is it about the Ents and the Entwives? What is it that makes that story so powerful? There are so many ways in which that particular element of Tolkien's story um, is uh, sort of touches chords in a very different kind of way. It's not um, you know exciting. You know, it's not uh, you know, Helm, the Battle of Helm's Deep is a favorite chapter of many people. Um, it was certainly one of my very favorites uh, uh, in, when I was, you know, in my early readings of Tolkien. Always has been. Um but uh, again, you know, the, the story of the Ents and the Antwives, completely tangential to the story of the Lord of the Rings. Um, you know, it's this sort of odd little element that we get this little piece of background history on and then we move on. But it is something which readers from day one through now still have found deeply, deeply moving. Um, so I want to kind of stop for a minute in our discussion of myth and the making of myth last time um, as we were looking at that. There, there were. Uh, I, I, I want to sort of look at the ants and the ant wives in that regard. There are a number of things. Um, you know, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to articulate it really clearly. But when we think about the uh, Tolkien's depiction of the ants and uh, of of the relationship between the ants and the ant wives, I guess one thing that I would do is sort of point to many of the things that Tolkien is kind of touching on there. Many of the elements um, that we can see at work in this, uh, in his character, uh, in his characterization of the ants in general, uh, and of uh, their relationship with the ant wives in particular, their loss of the ant wives in particular. Um, and because, you know, again, going back to the definition of myth that I was discussing last time, these stories which, which really seem to resonate, which really seem to sort of strike this chord with, you know, the human soul, with very many readers, um, even, uh, you know, even, and, and it's, and it's not necessarily connected to the way that the story is told. Again, remember, that's the element in, uh, in C.S. Lewis's definition of myth that I read last time, um, that it is, you know, a story which is deeply moving 
independent of its manner of expression. It is not a case of, you know, a, an author's genius in writing, in crafting or writing a story that makes it happen. But it is just intrinsically, it is just intrinsically powerful in itself. Um, and I think that um, there are certainly moments where Tolkien does craft his story so well that it brings us into um, an, uh, a mythic mode. But, you know, I'm not sure The Ants and the Antwives is one of those. Um, it seems to me one of those examples, like Lew- like uh, Lewis was describing, of, and, and again, this is one of the reasons why Lewis pointed to this as an illustration um, of myth um, in that exact same chapter, um, where he just sort of touches on something. And, and, and um, by definition, the things that myths point to are, I think, hard to define. What a myth what a a successful mythic story does is touch on something that is otherwise very difficult to grasp. Um, If it's something that we could just sort of spell out uh, and, uh, and, and, and analyze, then it wouldn't have the same kind of power. Um, you know, you can take, you can talk about it, of course, and I love doing it, and we'll be doing some of that in this class too. I love talking about poetry and looking at poetry and how it's working. Um, you can analyze and discuss poetry and come to appreciate it more and to see more clearly what's going on in it, and and that's fantastic, but you can never quite convey in prose everything that you can do in poetry. If you talk long enough, you can get at a bunch of the different elements, right? Um, But you can never really convey the whole package of what a poem gives you. Um, It's one of the powers of poetry. It's one of the advantages of poetry over prose. Poetry has this ability um, to convey ideas and to uh, and to sort of touch emotions and uh, and 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 concepts which um, if you tried to relate them in prose would at best take a really long time but most likely not really come off at all and I think again I think that myths do that same thing um, you know I mentioned that this the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice was the one that C.S. Lewis uh, you know used as his primary illustration uh, of myth when he was trying to describe what it was and how it worked and um, and again, if you sit down with the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice and you just try to explain in prose, okay, what is so powerful? What is what is it that makes this story so moving? Can we explain them and lay them out? And yeah, you can talk about them. Um, but they're never quite as moving. Uh, and it, 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 I find it never really quite works. So this is a sort of a dangerous game that I'm trying to play and trying to articulate exactly what it is about the Antoinette wife story that I think really... Um, uh, is really is so powerful. So I'm going to content myself with pointing to some of the elements, pointing to some in, in a kind of a fragmentary way um, that I think really combine to make their story a really profound one. Um, one is simply related to the nature of the Ents themselves. Um, this is something which Tolkien, in, on fairy, in his essay on fairy stories, um, he talked about one of the primal desires of the human soul, and that is communing with nature. Um, that you know, he considered it you know, one, of the, one, of the, one of the recurring elements of fairy stories, being able to speak uh, to animals, to, to be able to communicate um, with non-human creatures. Um, not 
to have stories about animals dressed up as people, um, but to actually be communicating with other living creatures uh, who are not human. This is, you know, again, he said one of the one of the what he considers one of the sort of primordial human desires. And with the Ents, we have that desire satisfied um, in a really remarkable way. Um, when in the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring, in chapter 3 of the Fellowship of the Ring, we uh, get a brief glimpse into the inner workings of the mind of a fox. That's a little bit interesting, but uh, but not very interesting. When all of a sudden we get what looks like a tree waking up, um, and being able to really be invited into Treebeard's world during that long... Um, you know, it's it's quite a long chapter, but in some ways it feels even longer than it is. The way that we, with along with Merry and Pippin, are immersed briefly uh, into that long, slow world of Treebeard. Um, and the way in which uh, Tolkien, I think, really successfully invites us uh, not just to kind of hear from a different creature. We've been meeting lots of different creatures, elves and dwarves and uh, and goblins and things along the way. But the way in which we are invited to sort of share Treebeard's world um, and the way that uh, Tolkien succeeds, I think, um, in inviting us to imagine what it would actually be like to communicate with a tree and the very different kind of experience of the world uh, that a tree must have uh, compared to all other kinds of living things. So that's one element, I think, which already, even before we get to the Entwives, puts the Ents in a very different category. Um, but then, of course, with uh, along with that, and really sort of associated with that, we have this, this idea of the passing of time and of memory. Um, that is, those things which endure and, st- and, and stay and, and see things come and go and time passing and, uh, and all of this stuff, these are, um, uh, these are normal. This, uh, this, and we, we get that a lot. We, we get a lot of old ancient things, you know, who have seen, you know, we've already met Galadriel. I was kind of joking about this, though, in, you know, in one of the, the, sub, the subtitles uh, of my slides last class, uh, you know, comparing Treebeard's wells of memory to Galadriel's wells of memory. That same phrase is used for both. Um, but Treebeard's wells of memory are a little bit deeper, or at least they're of a different kind. Um, and uh, there's something less um, less self-regarding um, in Treebeard's wells of memory. There's some, it's, but again, it's the way that we are invited into the experience of a tree. But again, it's associated with this idea, with this other, which I think is in Tolkien um, a powerful mythic idea of the passing of time, not just you know minutes and hours um but the 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 the, the dawning and the uh and the and the close of of entire epochs um and the th- and things passing away and getting that from treebeard who is not like goadriel merely a survivor of those things goadriel took part in all of these things and she with only a handful of people um is you know left alone to tell the tale of those elder days still um, in Middle-earth, but Treebeard, that's true of Treebeard too, but he's in a different place. He is almost purely an observer. Um, this occasion right here in these chapters, uh, when the Ents march to war on Isengard, 
<clears throat> is in the stories of Middle Earth the second occasion on which the Ents have taken direct action um, in those things. The first being in the first age when they came to the aid of of, uh, of Baron um, and the Green Elves against the armies of the Dwarves in Osirian. Um, after the after the the theft after the murder of Thingol and the theft of the Silmaril, so um, that's not much action but much watching, um, and the kind of you know. But it's not just passivity, you know, and it's not like he doesn't care. Um, but he has been watching and he has been minding his trees and seeing the world around him change uh, with a very different relationship than Galadriel has. Um, so again, that's another element, I think, to the Ents. But then we get into the Ents and the Ent Wives and, you know, the way that it touches on the idea of loss um, and grief. Um, you know, grief is a very... Uh, there's a lot of grief. There's a lot of grieving um, in Tolkien. Certainly a lot of things to grieve about. Um, and there's something about that passage when uh, you know Treebeard says we've lost the Antwives, and uh, and uh, Pippin says, "Oh, how sad! How did you come? You know, how was it that they all died?" And he said, "I never said died. We lost them. We lost them, and we don't know where to find them." Um, there is a way in which this never quite despairing um, search without real hope that the Ents have been carrying on, off and on, for centuries, um, for the Entwives, uh, really serves, I think, as a touchpoint for almost all human grief. Um, that uncertainty, um, those who are lost, are they, you know, are they really, you know, are they, lo- can we reconcile ourselves to their, to their loss? Are they really lost? Um, there's, there's something, I think, deeply poignant um, in that, continuing search, and you know, that image of Treebeard um, sitting there, you know, and the other ends just chanting the names of the lost Entwives. That's so beautiful. Um, and then what's more, in his description of the Ents and the Entwives, we get something profound about relationships. You know, when we hear about the Ents and the Entwives, and their um, they're going apart, and uh, you know, sort of their 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 separate interests and in going different ways, and their hearts not going on growing in the same way. Um, uh, which you know, and you can do gender stuff there, of course. Though I, I'm I'm a little bit. It's there, there are many ways in which you can do gender stuff, of course, with the ants and the ant wives. The situation, um, the situation invites it in many way, in many ways. I'm speaking of that the way I am because I I'm a little resistant to it because I think it's be it'd be really easy to oversimplify. Um that is to say, clearly the entwives are female and the ants are male, and he associates certain desires with the masculine ants and certain desires with the feminine entwives, um and they go their separate ways and are drawn in different directions. That's all fine and interesting. The Conclusion then, which seems to me uh, really easy, far too easy to then jump to, is to move from that to here. Then is like the assumptions that Tolkien makes about men and women, you know, about the masculine and the feminine in general. That is to take what he says about the incident wives and simply project and generalize it. Uh, and I think that would be sloppy. Um, I, I don't think that that maps onto everything else that we see. In particular, the Entwives, um, 
I, I don't I don't see the patterns that he describes in how he characterizes the antwives as being something which is you know stably and predictably true of women in Tolkien. So um so I'm 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 a little uh cautious about it because again I do, I don't want to encourage that kind of overgeneralization um which I find difficult. But but nevertheless there's there's a lot there. And again, the way that they're, they're you know, and, and the way that that's connected with the loss, um, that is the kind of guilt that is associated with Treebeard's loss as well. Um, you know, the Ents go looking for them and find that they're gone. You know, they weren't there. Could they have helped? Could they have helped to, to save the Ant Wives? Had they been, you know, had they not been divided uh, as they were? Um, it's, um, again, I think it really, really, um, it touches on so many of the emotional complexities of human relationships um, that I think it's it's uh, it, it's just another thing that kind of compounds that story and makes it so deeply moving. Um, anyway, those are some of my sort of uh, um, futile uh, uh, gestures at, at trying to articulate some of the elements anyway um, of, you know, that kind of come together to contribute to make that story really powerful. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, Sharon says uh, it's it's very poignant, it's endearing, because it crosses over from myth to a personal reaction to resonate with us. Um, and Sharon, that's a really interesting way. To th- I haven't been thinking of it in that way, but I think that that's, that seems to me right. Um, many of the other mythic ideas that we get in Tolkien are quite remote. And here, for instance, I point to that other example that Lewis gave in that same passage. Um, remember I told you last time he pointed to two elements in Tolkien to illustrate the, his idea of myth. One was the Ents uh, and the Entwives, and the other is uh, Lothlorien. That is a much more remote kind of myth, right, Sharon? I mean, that's not something that we necessarily really sort of intimately and personally connect with. Um, there's something... There's something. I mean, it's it's a myth about something beyond human experience, beyond even in many ways human understanding. Um, the the story of the ants and the antwives, though sufficiently remote, as these are tree people that we're talking about, still, you know, there's something much more much more personal, something uh, that we kind of connect to, I think, in a different way. Um, yeah. Um, Chris asks a really good and complicated question. Um, Chris says, Is it just me, or is there an almost sinister undertone to the Entwives' desire for order? Could they be lost because they were seduced away by Sauron? Chris, I certainly don't go that far. Um, I do not think that the Entwives have been, you know, turned and twisted and become trolls or something like that. Um, But... uh, but Chris, I think that you're right. Um, and I mentioned last time that I wrote a whole article, my first ever published article in Tolkien uh, stuff, um, as in the journal Tolkien Studies on the Ants and the Ant Wives, and especially a close analysis of, of the song that Treebeard sings. Uh, and Chris, I was making actually exactly that point in my article, which was if you look at the language that he uses to describe, that Treebeard uses to describe the Ant Wives' outlook on things, it actually sounds n- not so much like. S- 
like Sauron, but like Saruman, actually. Um, their desire for order, that uh, they, they want things to, to grow as they command them to grow. They want to be in control. They want a kind of domination um, over the plants with whom they have a relationship. Um, and that's, you know, is there is there something a little sketchy in that, Chris? You know, something certainly that makes Treebeard uncomfortable. Um, you know, whether that means that it's certifiably evil, you know, I'm, I'm less, uh, I'm less certain. Certainly I don't think it implies that they are, um, you know, I said that they have, uh, you know, totally gone over to the dark side, but, but Chris, I think it's an, a very interesting observation. One last thing I'd say about that, Chris, um, it is also possible, uh, that, remember this is Treebeard talking, and th- what we have here is an account of two people who had very different outlooks and went in different directions, told from the perspective of one of those outlooks, right? So there's an Entish bias in that story. If the Entwives were telling this story, they would presumably tell it a little bit differently, right? So um, so th- that's one caution I'd give, Chris, that to some extent I think we have to remember that when we're hearing that story, we're learning about the Entwives, but we're also kind of learning about the Ents, um, and to some extent that 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 particular language there, Chris, might be as much of a Treebeard story as it is an Entwife story, actually. Um, that, because manifestly, he sort of admits he himself and the other Ents never really got that desire. You know, they never shared that point. And so to them, it's alien and, uh, you know, maybe a little bit... Um, a little bit creepy, a little bit uncertain, and 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 they and you know have this kind of negative reaction to it, um, but uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Chris, uh, a different Chris. Chris Stevens says, "I always thought Treebeard was was a little biased in his statements." Um, yeah, exactly. I think so. Um, yeah, Chris says Treebeard is an unreliable narrator. Well, all narrators are unreliable. I mean, that's one of the that's one of the that's one of the facts. Um, John was just asking asking the same thing. Um, yeah, and remember, he is explicitly describing. I mean, he 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 confesses openly that you know he is he is describing uh, you know again one side of a divide and them not being able to understand the other side. That's sort of part of the whole thing. Um, and the thing, this is another important thing. One of the one of the sort of central observations that I was making in that article that I wrote is that a lot of people make a mistake about the song that tributes, and, you know, the antiphonal ent and ent wife song. Um, and a lot of people talk about that and just talk about it kind of carelessly and say, you know, oh, Treebeard's song. It's not Treebeard's song. Right, he sings it, but if you go back and look, and remember, that's an Elvish song, right? It's not an Entish song. Not only is it not long enough, um, but the 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 opinions expressed in that song are not the opinions of Treebeard. In fact, he explicitly disagrees with them. Um, you know, he says the Ents could say more on their part if they had time, right? So he's there both jabbing at the shortness of the song, which you'll recall he immediately criticizes. It is Elvish, of course, lighthearted, quick-worded, and soon over. Um, so he, 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 he kind of, you know, he, he slightly belittles the song anyway. But it's clear that he does not feel, inasmuch as this song purports to um, have the Ent and the Entwife kind of debating with each other, or competing with each other, he feels like they are not at all doing the Ent's side justice, right? So don't forget that when we're reading the song, and that's, I think, one of the things that we get in that passage is a kind of counterbalancing to 
the sort of inescapable Entish bias of Treebeard, that song is the one version of the Ent and Entwife relationship that we get which is not skewed towards the Ents, because this is Treebeard quoting, it's a third-person account, right? It's a third-person rendition, who may, of course, understand neither perspective, but at least it's not simply um, a uh, an elvish one. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Ed asks, if the elves taught the Ents to speak, how did Entish develop, I wonder? Slowly. Um... If you read Appendix F, Tolkien talks about the Entish language, and basically, you know, he says it's like a, you get there by, like, just having a bunch of words and word parts all glommed together um, to uh, sort of, instead of just choosing, you know, a word, you know, a sort of a set of syllables to, uh, to describe something, um, they just sort of put all of the concepts all together. Um, so, uh, so it's, it does seem to be in, in many ways a language which is, uh, which is sort of, you know, inspired by Elvish. You know, he says elves began it. You know, he does admit that, um, you know, their use of language goes back to elves, ultimately. Um, but their language, they have very much made their own, uh, based upon their own nature, their own, uh, their own character. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Um, let's see, there was one other comment that I missed that I wanted to catch. Who was talking about Doom? Ah, Daniel, that was you. Um, Yes, Daniel says, Doom is an interesting idea in what Treebeard states near the end, that their doom is not merely that they die in battle, um, and th- that, they will de- that they will be, you know, that, that their story will be ended, and as characters in Middle-earth, their time is over, and this last contribution before they fade away, and it's connected with their last wish to see the Entwives one last time, and that will, un- that will likely never happen. Yeah, that idea of doom... Um, Doom is, I think, a really important word in the Lord of the Rings. Um, And I think that it is very profitable to think very carefully about the word doom and to pay careful attention whenever the word doom is used. In fact, it would be a fun exercise to go through the Lord of the Rings and highlight every use of the word doom and think about them. Look at their context, look at how the word is used, because it is used in very different ways. This is true in the Silmarillion, too. Doom is also a very important word in the Silmarillion. Um, it's really just an important Tolkien word. Um, and, you know, I, I uh, boldly, or rashly, or foolishly, however you want to characterize it, um, allowed myself to touch on the topic of uh, fate and free will um, two classes ago. And I will do so again, very even more briefly, only in as much as to say, Tolkien's use of the word doom, I think, really points to what I was talking about a couple classes ago in regards to that. That is, the way in which we can see both some kind of sense of an external fate which has predestined events, um, that is, uh, and simultaneously the significance of the choices of the individual actors in these in these events. Um, and the word doom, in one word, captures that paradox, because doom means two different things. It means, on the one hand, um, fate, 
right? A doom has been placed upon somebody. There is some kind of prevailing fate uh, that is guiding events so that, you know, an end has been has been doomed by some higher thing. You know, doom is coming. But at the same time, the word doom also means a judgment, a, a decision that somebody makes. Uh, you'll remember very prominently when Elrond uses it in that way in the Council of Elrond, when he's asking, you know, what to do with the ring. That is the doom that we must deem, he says, using both the noun form and the verb form of the same word, doom and deem, in the same sentence, right? That is the doom that we must deem. So a doom is something laid upon you by some kind of external force, on the one hand. It's also something that you deem. It's it's a choice that you make, on the other hand. Um, and, uh, and so, Daniel, I think that we can see um, ways in which that word is being really richly used in, in, in Treebeard's um, words there also. Um, there is a there is a kind of doom to the loss of the Entwives. There is a kind of a you know, there is a doom lying you know, they are they are going to they are possibly going to meet their doom, uh, but of course they have uh, they have uh, they have chosen yes, Chris was remembering that this is the doom that we must deem line. Um uh, yeah, good. Um uh Rachel's uh, sort of querying the relationship between Ents and Elves as far as speaking goes. Um, uh, Treebeard says that the uh, the Elves began it, you know, waking trees up and teaching them uh, and learning their tree talk. They always want, you know, they want to always wanted to talk to everyone to the old Elves. Um, he says they are the ones who cured us of dumbness long ago. Um, so he does at least give the Elves credit for teaching them to speak, or inducing them to speak, or speaking with them, and thus, I don't know, encouraging conversation, but they cured us of dumbness, are his words. Um, so he does uh, give uh, give the elves credit for that. And as Brandon points out, uh, back to Doom, they are also bringing Doom to Isengard. Um, I agree. Let's talk about... Can we read that poem, please? Because I love this poem. Um... A oh, brief note on my uh, my subtitle here: um, "Until Great Fangorn Wood High Isengard Shall Come." Of course, I'm parodying the line from Macbeth: "Until Great Burnham Wood High Dunsinane Hill Shall Come," the prophecy that's made to Macbeth, um, and that's you know I'm sure many of you have heard this. I know I've talked about this before, but for those of you who weren't familiar with it, um, this is Tolkien has has you know has had admitted was one of the uh, was one of the inspirations, in a sense, um, to uh, the attack of the Ents on Isengard, um, that scene in Macbeth, because he he recounted how, uh, when he was young, he was always very moved by the idea of that prophecy of Great Burnham Wood coming to High Dunsinane Hill, and then the fulfillment of that prophecy was so bitterly disappointed, um, warning Macbeth spoilers, um, that in fact how the prophecy is fulfilled is simply that the arm, the attacking army hacks off branches of trees and uh, each soldier is carrying a branch above their head, so from a distance it looks like, you know, to, to disguise their numbers is their rationale, so from a distance it looks like the wood is coming and marching in on the, uh, on the, on, on the hill and on the castle. And of course the young Tolkien's reaction to this was, that is freaking lame. Uh, I No, I want the wood to come and advance upon the castle. That would be awesome. So, we get the fulfillment uh, of that desire in Treebeard and the Ants. Um, listen to 
listen to this poem. Um, this poem uh, is one of the most classic examples of uh, that I would point to why you should always, 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 always read the poems aloud. Tolkien is an extremely auditory poet. Um, his poems are meant to be heard. Tolkien had a fantastic ear, um, and he does really amazing things uh, with the rhythm and the, and, the, and the meter and the sound of his poetry. Um, so always, always read it aloud. Um, you can catch things that you don't catch otherwise. Um, and this one is not extremely subtle, but really powerful uh, in uh, in doing what it does with rhythm. And again, if you just read it silently, you're not going to get it nearly as much. To Isengard, though Isengard be ringed and barred with doors of stone, though Isengard be strong and hard, as cold as stone and bare as bone, we go, we go, we go to war to hew the stone and break the door, for bowl and bow are burning now, the furnace roars, we go to war. To land of gloom, with tramp of doom, with roll of drum, we come, we come. To Isengard, with doom we come, with doom we come, with doom we come. Notice several things. Notice the rhythm. Um, this is a very... The, the, the rhythm of this poem is very simple. Um, it is a very regular iambic rhythm. Bum, 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 bum. Um, and also notice, although he often favors odd numbers of beats, like we were looking at some of the poems before, um, like the Boromir poem, which had seven feet, uh, you know, seven primary beats to a line, and that's a pretty, you know, I was saying at the time that, that that's a pretty common meter uh, that Tolkien wrote in a lot. The Nimmerdell poem uh, is in that too. Um, we don't get seven beats, we get eight beats, right? Because we are in an even marching uh, rhythm here. This is, of course, the march of the ants, and this is marching music, right? Um, so... So we get a very regular iambic um, with uh, with uh, with an almost metronomic beat, right, and an even number of syllables, so that we're marching left, right, all the way through uh, this poem. Notice how he also plays uh, with the sound of the words as well. Um, uh, again, the way that he emphasizes the the uh, the 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 beats. Um, he uses a lot of not not an overwhelming amount, but he uses a lot of alliteration uh, to really bang those home, especially with the bees. Right, as cold as stone and bare as bone, for bowl and bow are burning now. The furnace roars. We go to war. Um, the way that he has, um, the way that he plays with the way that the 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 meaning of the words is echoed by the actual sound of the words that are being said. Um, with roll of drum, we come, we come. Um, uh, you know, he, they just said we come with roll of drum. Then what do we get? To Isengard, with doom we come, with doom we come, with doom we come, like a bass drum, doom, doom, doom. Just that is, you'll remember the syllable that he uses uh, to uh, phonetically uh, express the sound of the drums in the deep in Moria, doom, doom, doom. Um, one of my favorite, by the way, usages of the word doom. Don't leave that one out in your tabulation of the word uses of the word doom in the Lord of the Rings. Don't forget doom, doom, especially at the end of that chapter, um, you know, which ends with doom, the drums ceased. Um, so good, so good. Um, 
but anyway, um, so yeah, so we get that, you know, so at the end we get that, you know, the, the, the repetition of the word doom as the, as, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, the beating of the drum there, um, but it's of course also significantly, as we said, the word doom, 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 that is being repeated uh, there, of course, and it is, of course, Isengard's doom that they are marching to, but, um, but obviously also their own, potentially, as they themselves fully recognize and totally embrace. Um, and uh, to land of gloom with tramp of doom, that half line all by itself, it just makes me so happy I can't even describe. Um, the way that the sounds are interlocked there, that is classic Tolkien, that kind of playing with internal rhyme, um, because uh, you'll notice it's not just gloom and doom, uh, the simple rhyme of gloom and doom, but the assonance of land and tramp um, uh, connected with those, uh, with those, with that rhyme there, um, and then with the repetition, you know, with roll of drum, we come, we come, um, so that we get this line which has, you know five internally rhyming syllables, right? Gloom and doom, and then drum come come. Um, Anyway, so, so good. I just love this poem. Uh, and it's, this is, you know, and what I'm pointing to here is just, so, again, a really simple and pretty obvious example of Tolkien utilizing the sound of the words and the rhythm of his verse uh, to accentuate and reflect the content of the poem, the meaning of the poem. He does this many times and in much more subtle ways. This is a pattern of his. Again, he was so um, so sensitive to and thoughtful to the sounds of words that it is it is it is very consistently one of the elements that he uses that he utilizes. It's you know it's 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 one of the um, you know it's one of the colors on his you know palette of uh, of 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 words. You know as a as a as a as a word painter here in these poems that that he uses very regularly. I think. Um, so, anyway, um, yeah, yeah, um, Sarah says that there's also alliteration across adjacent lines, like hard and hue, um, yes, yes, and you get bare as bone, then being brought back to bowl and bow are burning now, um, yeah, yeah, no, I agree, um, Sarah. It's it is it's not just the alliteration within the lines like bowl, bow, and burning, um, but the way that it's picking up on bowl and bow are burning now is picking up on Bear's bone. Notice what Baron Bone Bear's bone is describing Isengard, right? Though Isengard be strong and hard as cold as stone, and Bear's bone, bowl and bow are burning now, right? So we've got the the contrast of Isengard and Fangor in the forest, right? Um, Fangorn is not bare as bone. It is, you know, it is it is fertile and growing and rich. But bowl and bow are burning now, right? And if Isengard is left to have its way, if Saruman is not stopped, then Isengard is going to be bare as bone. Or, sorry, Fangorn is going to be bare as bone as well, right? Um, Isengard is moving out, and it's going to absorb Fangorn, because bowl and bow are burning now, and the result of that is to become bare as bone. Um, uh, so yeah, absolutely. I think that that that's uh, uh, seeing those kinds of connections um, is uh, is 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 very important. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, uh, 
<laughs> my, my myth grade students uh, probably have been laughing at me for some time uh, because I always do this. Um, whenever I don't quite finish at the end of one class what I wanted to say, and I say, I'm just going to come back to that at the beginning of class next time. I almost invariably spend an entire, the entire first half of the next class talking about what I didn't quite finish up with the inescapable consequence that I don't get through what I wanted to talk about in that class either. <clears throat> but do I learn? I don't learn. Um, anyway, there, <laughs> there it is. So, yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I know, Sharon, I know you're laughing at me. It's okay, it's okay. Um, let's go on and talk about some other poetry. Let's, I know, let's talk about what I actually plan to talk about today. Um, which is the Rohirrim. Um, this is really the central class session, uh, you know, in our discussion of this book, where I want to talk about Rohan and how Rohan is being treated here, um, and what, well, how vague am I being? What is going on in Rohan? Um, I want to start with a poem, because, hey, we're doing poetry now, so let's do more poetry. Um, this is, of course, a very famous poem, but I think this is a very interesting example um, of why you have to read, not only just read the poems, but read the poems really carefully. Because notice what happens here. Okay, so first of all, remember the context of this poem. Um, here, wait. Let's do something more fun. Quiz. Don't look at the book. If you have the book with you, don't look at it. Who recites this poem? Whose poem is this? Okay, yes. Aragorn recites it. Who wrote it? Who wrote it? Did Aragorn make this poem up? <laughs> Tolkien wrote it. Yes, I know Tolkien wrote it, Josh. That's not what I'm talking about. Um, yes, yes, good, Jenny. Some unknown poet of the Rohirrim, right? Sharon says the ancient Rohirrim, yes. Um, exactly. Okay, so, some unknown bard, yes. Okay, so he's quoting... Now, do you remember why? Why does he break into this poem? And where are they? What are the circumstances? Do you remember? Who remembers? When does Aragorn uncork this poem? Okay, yep, Brandon says the moment when they first see Metuseld, right? They're approaching Metuseld, right, Sean? They're looking at Edoras from a distance, exactly. Um, uh, yeah, Kay says they're talking about the speech of Rohan. Yeah, Aragorn recites it first in Rohiric, which is not exactly Anglo-Saxon, but it pretty much is. And, um, uh, yes, uh, he he does recite it when they come into view. Do you remember why? Remember what prompts it? Let me go back and read a little bit. Just a tiny bit. To give us some, some context. You'll see why I'm, I want to talk about the context of this poem. And I'll tell you in advance. The moral of the story is that not only must you always read the poetry in Tolkien, but you must always read the poetry very carefully, because sometimes it's a little tricky. Okay, so they've just passed through, I think very significantly, the the barrows, the burial mounds of the kings. And uh, uh, Aragorn has said, Seven mounds upon the left and nine upon the right, said Aragorn. Many long lives of men is it since the Golden Hall was built. Five hundred times have the red leaves fallen in Mirkwood in my home since then, said Legolas, and but a little while does that seem to us. 
But to the riders of the mark it seems so long ago, said Aragorn, that the raising of this house is but a memory of song, and the years before are lost in the mist of time. Now they call this land their home, their own, and their speech is sundered from their northern kin. Then he began to chant softly, in a slow tongue unknown to the elfin dwarf, yet they listened, for there was a strong music in it. "'That, I guess, is the language of the Rohirrim,' said Legolas, "'for it is like to the land itself, rich and rolling in part, "'and else hard and stern as the mountains. "'But I cannot guess what it means, "'save that it is laden with the sadness of mortal men.' "'It runs thus in the common speech,' said Aragorn, "'as near as I can make it.'" And then we get the translation here. Okay, so that's our context. Now keep in mind... um, this is the uh, the so the uh, the the great barrows where the that's 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 where we start, and then oh, right good Diego recalled that. Um, now we get the poem. I'm going to read the poem through carefully. Then I'm gonna we're gonna we're gonna do one other piece of context, and we'll come back to the poem. Where now the horse and the rider? Where is the horn that was blowing? Where is the helm and the hauberk and the bright hair flowing? Where is the hand on the harp-string and the red fire glowing? Where is the spring and the harvest and the tall corn growing? They have passed like rain on the mountain, like a wind in the meadow. The days have gone down in the west behind the hills into shadow. Who shall gather the smoke of the dead wood burning, or behold the flowing years of the, from the sea returning? Kind of messed that up there at the end. But okay, so there's the poem. Now, Aragorn immediately, this is where it gets tricky, Aragorn immediately gives us a gloss of this poem, right? He explains what this poem is about. Well, thanks, Aragorn, that makes it easier, right? Oh, that's awful, that's awful nice of you. He says, Thus spoke a forgotten poet long ago in Rohan, telling how tall and fair was Eorl the Young, who rode down out of the north, and there were wings upon the feet of his steed, Phaleroth, father of horses. So men still sing in the evening. With these words, the travelers passed the silent mounds. Okay. Recalling how tall and fair was Errol the Young, who rode down from the north. Okay, so now we're reading, and we're paying attention to the poem. We've read the poem. But there's some kind of abstract stuff in the poem, you know, You'd have to read it a couple times to, to really think about it carefully. But then you've got Aragorn explaining it right away. So I go, oh, okay. I know what this poem is about. Right? Where now the horse and the rider? Oh, oh it's about Errol er- the Young. He's the, he's the rider. Phaleroth, father of horses. That's the horse. Okay. Now, now I've, I've got the key to it. Right? So what? This poem is a celebration of ancient heroes. Right? When we get into Meduseld, right, we see the that big... Um, image, right? Visual image of Eorl the Young, right? With all looking all golden and you know young and everything, right? Uh, with his you know with his with his with Faleroth, father of horses, and and it looks awesome, right? Um, clearly celebrating the mighty hero that was of old and and you know came down and triumphed on the field of Celebrant and established the kingdom, and um, this is awesome. So, okay, so that's what the poem's about, right? This poem, Celebration, Errol the Young, obviously. Right? Okay, now pause, and let's actually look at the poem. Now, first of all, disclaimer. This poem is very famously 
at least the first couple lines, are very famously an adaptation, not a translation, but an adaptation from a very famous Anglo-Saxon poem um, called The Wanderer. Um, and many of you will probably be familiar with this. Um, Tolkien is, again, he's sort of semi-translating, I would call it adapting, uh, lines from, a, a couple lines from the poem The Wanderer there. I'm not going to get into that right now, mostly because we don't have time. In order to, to really see, this poem is even, like, there's some really cool stuff that we can see going on in this poem. There's like four times as much cool stuff if we look at the lines from The Wanderer. So you, you, you compare what The Wanderer says in those lines, and what this poem says in those lines, and then you compare it to the context of those lines in the entire poem of The Wanderer, trying to get a fuller understanding of how the poem The Wanderer is working, and what that passage, um, how that passage functions within that poem, and then we compare that to this, uh, and see how not only how Tolkien has altered the lines, the similarities and differences in the lines, but how this poem is being used in the context of this passage. We'd have to do all of that stuff in order to, um, in order to, to, to really have done a thorough job here uh, in looking at this poem. So, not having time to do that stuff, I'm just going to give it a miss. I'm just going to point to it and say, The Wanderer is awesome. I, I recommend this to you. It's another project. I mean, this is more homework I'm assigning you. Read The Wanderer, do exactly that analysis that I just described, and this poem will be four times cooler than it currently is. But we don't have time for that. Now, let's go back to the poem. Where now the horse and the rider? Where is the horn that was blowing? Where is the helm and the hauberk and the bright hair flowing? Where is the hand on the harp string and the red fire glowing? Where is the spring and the harvest and the tall corn growing? Okay, first few things to notice here. Um, we have a bunch of questions, right? Four questions. Notice the trend here. Where are the horse and the rider? Where is the horn that was blowing? Both of these images, the blowing horn and the horse and rider, evoke the idea of battle and war, possibly of hunting, but probably of battle and war, right? <clears throat> so we have the image. We do indeed begin with an image of a rider who may or may not be Errol the Young. It doesn't explicitly say that, but that certainly seems plausible. Um, but anyway, uh, it seems to be talking about a horse and rider of bygone times, and alludes to the blowing of a horn. Where is the helm and the hauberk and the bright hair flowing? Well, now we're definitely talking about a warrior. Um, but notice how it's getting less personal. We started with the horse and the rider. Then we went to the sound of the, hor the, you know, the horn and its sound. And what happened to that, to that horn that, was, that used to be blowing, that was blowing? Now we have the helm and the hauberk and the bright hair flowing. We're still talking about a warrior, I guess, but it's sort of less personalized, right? We're talking about these things um, that are associated with the warrior um, or with warriors in general. Where is the hand on the harp string and the red fire glowing? We take a step back even further, right? Um, where is the hand on the harp string? There's something a little bit ironic, even sort of self-aware about that line, right? This is somebody would have his hand on the harp string and be strumming while singing this song, right? Um, 
this is a song that he has that this whoever is singing it has heard from singers of old, right? Um, where is the hand that was on the harp string? Where is the red fire that was glowing? The fire at the center, you know, presumably the fire in question is the fire at the center of the mead hall, the fire at the center of the gathering building. There's a big fire pit in the middle of Meduseld. Um Where was that? That fire of 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 home and safety and companionship. Where is it? Where are all these things? That's the question that we keep asking, right? Ubisunt. Where are these things now? Where is the spring and the harvest and the tall corn growing? Now it's the seed. And we've taken a step back even further. Where's the? Where are the? We've got the cycle of the seasons: the spring and the harvest and the tall corn growing, like in the next season, right? But where are those? Where are those seasons? There's one answer to all of these questions, right? Um, you know, all of the, the what, five-ish questions that we've asked uh, in these first four lines. What's the answer? Well, we get the answer. They have passed, like rain on the mountain, like a wind in the meadow. Think about those two similes. They have passed. Simple answer. They've passed. All of those things are gone now. How are they gone? In what way are they gone? What would we compare them to? We compare them to rain on the mountain, a wind in the meadow. They've passed. And they passed, leaving almost nothing behind them, right? What happens in rain when it falls on a mountain? Runs off, right? The mountain, not significantly changed, usually, right? A wind in the meadow. There are winds coming through the meadow all the time. Doesn't leave a lasting impression on the meadow usually, right? That's how they have passed. Like rain on the mountain. Like a wind in the meadow. The days have gone down in the west behind the hills into shadow. Right? The sun always comes back, but it's always going in the same way, right? There's no returning from the western horizon. Um, the days have gone down into shadow. After every day comes night. Day comes again, but and night comes again, right? That's what keeps happening. That's where they've gone, horse and the rider, the horn that was blowing. And then we end with a rhetorical question. Those first questions weren't rhetorical. There's an answer, right? And it gives them. They've passed. Now we have a rhetorical question. Who shall gather the smoke of the dead wood burning, or behold the flowing years from the sea returning? Who shall... Uh, nobody... Right? That doesn't seem to have an answer. Who shall gather the smoke from the dead wood burning? You can't reconstruct the wood after a fire has happened. Right? That is a one-way street. Um, I, I remember learning about that in middle school science, actually. Right? Um, that's, that's, that's clear. Right? Um, and it's a question which points to the futility of attempting it. Right? Um, should you try to stop any of these things from passing, like rain on the mountain or wind in the meadow, you'd be like somebody trying to gather back together the smoke of a, of a fire uh, and to reconstruct from it the wood. And I think the adjective dead is a very significant one. The, the, even if you could 
you wouldn't have a tree, you'd still just have dead wood, right? It's not even possible. But even if it were possible, it's just dead wood, right? Dead wood burning. Um, who shall gather the smoke of the dead wood burning, or behold the flowing years from the sea returning? Rivers only flow one way, down to the sea. They don't come back from the sea. Nor mo- no more do the days come out from the shadow behind the hills, where they all go down to. No one is going to behold the flowing years returning from the sea. Nobody can gather the smoke from the dead wood burning. It's a bit of a downer. Notice also how uh, the shape of this poem really reflects this sentiment as well. Notice the structure of those first few lines. Where now the horse and the rider? Where is the horn that was blowing? Where is the helm and the hauberk and the bright hair flowing? Um, Anyone who has read any uh, Anglo-Saxon will recognize this is alliterative meter. He is using... Uh, he is using traditional Anglo... Even in the translation here, this is the modern English translation from the uh, the Rohiric original, um, but his translation here is... is That is, I'm thinking of Aragorn's translation from the language of Rohan. Um, but he's using quite fine alliterative meter. I won't go into all the details of alliterative meter uh, at this point, but... Um, but you can see, but to, to give a very, very crude summary of it, uh, you've got four major beats in a line with a pause in the middle. It uses alliteration in at least two and sometimes three of the primary syllables. Um, the, the third syllable always alliterates. The fourth syllable never alliterates. So the first line, where now the horse and the rider? Where is the horn that was blowing? Horse, rider, horn, blowing. Those are our four beats. And we alliterate on one and three, horn, uh, horse and horn. Um, where is the helm and the hauberk and the bright hair flowing? Helm, hauberk, hair, flowing. Um, so we're alliterating now on one, two, and three, and not on four. Two excellent alliterative lines. Um, this is all working very well to make it even cooler. Uh, we are alliterating on the same sound, on the H sound, in both lines, so that both of the lines are being connected together as well. Those two lines clearly form a unit as an additional piece of uh, uh, bonus material in those two lines. We have terminal rhyme, which was not a feature, uh, a a general feature anyway, of Anglo-Saxon rhyme, of of Anglo-Saxon lines, rather, of Anglo-Saxon meter. So we've added, uh, we've, 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 we've added end rhyme. Well, that's kind of cool. So we've got two quite highly structured lines there in the first two. Now we carry on. The two, the, the lines three and four are just like them, right? They even have the same end rhyme, right? We've got blowing, flowing, glowing, growing. So those are all being connected together. They've got the same general pattern of rhythm, where is the hand on the harp string and the red fire glowing? Where is the spring and the harvest and the tall corn growing? Notice what happened there, though? What happened to our alliteration? The second line alliterates on H's, just like the first two. Hand on the harp string. But it breaks the rules. You're supposed to alliterate on three. It's just one, t- you know, hand, harp string, fire, glowing. It alliterates on just one and two and not three. The alliterative scheme failed in that line. Well, you know, everybody has an off day. Maybe Tolkien screwed that one up. But look at line four. 
Where is the spring and the harvest and the tall corn growing? That line doesn't alliterate at all. It has no internal alliteration. There isn't, like, a single repeated sound. Uh, it, there isn't a single repeated consonant uh, in that, uh, I mean, initial consonant, in that line. It's got one H, right? Which does connect it back to the previous lines. But our really nifty alliterative meter in the first two lines is unraveling here. It stumbled in line three. It fails, though there's still a memory of it in line four. And then line five, notice what happens in line five. They have passed like rain on the mountain, like a wind in the meadow. The days have gone down in the west behind the hills into shadow. Notice how many more syllables there are in those lines? Those are not very carefully structured lines. Those sound almost like prose. They have passed like rain on the mountain, like a wind in the meadow. The days have gone down in the west behind the hills into shadow. That second line in particular sounds like prose. The only thing that sounds like verse in the first of those two lines in line five is the is the comma in the middle. They have passed like rain on the mountain, like a wind in the meadow. Taking those two similes and putting them in parallel, parallel like that sounds kind of poetic. Other than that, those are pretty prosy lines. And we don't we don't get alliteration. We get days have gone down, right? A little, little echo of alliteration, but again, not using regular alliterative structure at all. Then we return to length of line about the same as before. Who shall gather the smoke of the dead wood burning, or behold the flowing years from the sea returning? Um, who shall gather... Who shall gather? Who shall rebuild the ruins of our alliterative structure? Nobody. Um, I, I, it doesn't come again. There's a there's a, the 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 rhythm sounds similar, but we don't we don't recover the structure. Um, I think the way that he has this poem kind of fray apart. Uh, Case says the, the the alliteration too has passed like rain on the mountain. Um, yes, it certainly has. Um, and I, 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 that, I, I think, is entirely deliberate on Tolkien's part. Um, and, and a really fascinating touch. Um, and this is where, frustratingly to you, to allude to the, the, the Wanderer, which we aren't talking about, this is a place where it really deviates, I think, from the Wanderer very strongly. So again, that's, that's, uh, if you compare it another cue, um, that, um, that we're that 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 he's uh, like the cue of the 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 sort of oddness of the meter, um, and again I I mean oddness like odd numbers of syllables and 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 uh, uh, you know the lines are different from each other they're different from the rest of the lines um, they just don't sound anything like it and they don't sound even much like any kind of verse much less uh, like alliterative verse. Okay, so what happened to Aeoro and Felleroth, father of horses? This is not, in fact, at all a poem which celebrates Aeoro the Young and his mighty ride onto the field of Celebrant, or his, you know, triumphant uh, and heroic leading of the people uh, south to, to, to come to the aid um, of the steward of, of, of Gondor. That's nowhere here. We're not getting that at all. There's no gesture at that. Maybe Aeoro the Young is the writer intended, and that it's his bright hair that is being pointed to in line two. 
But if so, all it's saying about Errol the Young is that he's dead and he's gone. Remember the context. Where does this happen? Among the tombs of the ancient kings. And Aragorn and Legolas talking about antiquity and about the passing of time and about how those days 500 years before seem so far gone, you know, so far distant uh, to the men of Rohan that they barely remember them. And in that context, Aragorn is prompted to recite this poem. Do I think that Aragorn totally misunderstands his own poem that he's recited? Or not his poem, of course, the poem that he's just recited? No, I don't think he's misunderstood it. But I do think that his little gloss at the end is very misleading if we're not careful. Um, again, if we go back and look at it again after examining the poem carefully, I don't think it's wrong. Um, Thus spoke a forgotten poet long ago in Rohan, telling how tall and fair was Eorl the Young, who rode down out of the north, and there were wings upon the feet of his steed, Felleroth, father of horses. Yeah, that's all true. Um, except he's kind of left out the bit where the whole poem is about how they've passed like rain on the mountain, <laughs> like a wind in the meadow, uh, that the days of Eorl have gone down in the west behind the hills into shadow. Um, that... Uh, Glorious though the ride of Errol the Young might be, it was in the end only the burning of dead wood, and nobody can gather the smoke from that burning once again. Um, in fact, the clearest, best gloss we get of this poem is Legolas's. Who doesn't understand it at all? Right? He doesn't when, when he just hears it uh, sung in the language of Rohan. He doesn't understand the language, so he doesn't know the content of the song. But he says, you know, he says, you know, I, I, I cannot guess what it means, save that it is laden with the sadness of mortal men. Got it in one, Legolas. That's exactly what this poem is about. You don't need to understand the language; you get it already. This is this song is laden with the sadness of mortal men. This song is, if anything, a contemplation of mortality. Um, that this is uh, this is a, this is a song that is not unique to the people of Rohan, but really about mortal men in general. One thing that I would point out, panning outwards even further uh, into the context of this poem. This moment is a pretty significant moment. They've already encountered Aemir and the Rohirrim on the fields, of course. Um, but if you think about the overall shape of the narrative so far, the story begins in the Fellowship of the Ring in the land of the Halflings, right? Which uh, is very significant, I think, as I've talked about on many other occasions, in that it, like in The Hobbit, starts off with a land which feels very familiar and comfortable. Um, even though there are things that are strange and unusual about it, it is the single... It is the area of Middle-earth that we, as readers, can kind of connect with most clearly. Um, it's the most homey of all of them. And then Frodo goes out into the wide world, right? Um, and they meet elves and are pursued by the servants of Sauron and go to Rivendell and, uh, you know, have this encounter with, you know, I, I have a confrontation with a mountain and then travel through the ancient realm of Moria and meet a freaking Balrog for crying out loud. And then they go, you know, and then they're in Lothlorien and, like, lose track of a month as they go out into this semi-timeless world where time passes in odd ways. Uh, and then they 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 
come down and they do uh, meet the Rohirrim and they're chasing the orcs, but they're on the borders of Fangorn and they meet Gandalf returned from the dead. Now, so so we've moved out from the Homey realm and we've moved into these ancient realms that are ancient in various and different ways, right? Which are alien, both alien and ancient. Rivendell, Moria, Lothlorien, Fangorn, right? All of these places which are full of the memories of the ancient world. Um, and they encounter many um, holdovers from the ancient world, right? Starting right away with Tom Bombadil. Um, as soon as they leave the borders of the Shire, they start meeting these ancient creatures who have been around uh, and seen the ancient world and and tell them of them. Tom Bombadil, even Old Man Willow, the Barrow Whites, um, the Ringwraiths, Rivendell, the Balrog, Galadriel. Uh, they don't meet Treebeard, but we've met Treebeard, and and uh, and then we get Gandalf's account. Um, so they, you know that sort of now now we're crossing a threshold as they approach Meduseld. We are entering into the realms of men. We've not been there. Um, it's easy to lose track of that. I mean, we've been with Aragorn uh, and we've been with Boromir, but they're neither one of them. Uh, uh, very good data points as far as encountering the world of men is concerned. Boromir kind of is. Aragorn much less so. Um, it's kind of like how you can you can forget the it, when you're reading the Hobbit you can forget the fact when you arrive in when you arrive in Lake Town that we've not met a human being prior to that moment um, you're right, that it's not until chapter ten that we encounter a human or a human civilization um, when oftentimes when people think about that that tends to come as a little bit of a surprise um, well uh, in a sense. Again, again, that's also true here in the Lord of the Rings. But now, we're crossing that threshold, and you know, Frodo's got his own threshold that he's crossing, or that he's crossing over there. And we'll look at Frodo and his threshold when we look at the second half of this book. But, um, I, but here, the you know, the the story is crossing into the world of men, um, with first the Rohirrim, and then with the people of Gondor in books three and book five. Um, the story crosses over into the mortal realms, and it's going to stay there. And actually, the whole world is going to stay there. It's time for the... We are, you know, the, the time of the dominion of men is nigh. This is really the moment where that transition occurs, um, where that threshold is being crossed. And this poem is what we're getting to welcome us across that threshold. And I think that that's um, um, that that's pretty nifty. Both Joel and uh, Kay are pointing um, <clears throat> are pointing out Bree. Does Bree not count as a human land? No, <laughs> no, totally not. Of course, they are men in Bree. Uh, of course, it's in the Hobbit. I say that we don't meet any humans until later on. So we didn't meet any humans. We do get a glimpse of it in Bree. Bree is interesting, though. Um, because Brie is explicitly transitional, right? The fact that we have humans and and uh, you know big folk and little folk uh, living together, um, it exists as uh, you know it exists on a crossroads. It is a kind of meeting of the ways. Um, even the way in which we have new men, whether they're good kinds of new men like like Butterbur or bad kinds of new men like Bill Fernie. Um, they're still very much men of the new age rather than Aragorn, who's like a man of the old age. 
not like he really quite is a man of the old age. Um, so, um, yeah. Though again, as I, you know, as I, I said, a sort of transitional. Brie is more like. I don't know. It's not. My point is not just that when they leave the Shire, they cross into the ancient world of fairy and never emerge until we get to this point, <clears throat> but that the focal point of the the focal point of the narrative as we follow Frodo and Sam and Merry and Pippin um, in the Fellowship of the Ring, especially in Book One of the Fellowship of the Ring. Um, is very much them becoming immersed in this bigger world and encountering these big and scary things. Bree serves, if anything, I think, to emphasize that. The fact that when they, you know, that their first encounters in the old forest are already fully immer- immersed in this big, dangerous, sort of fairy, capital F like place, um, then they have this brief what looks like a respite, right? Oh, phew, okay. That was a little scary, right? You know, old forest, um, barrow downs, but now we're back in the regular world, right? Um, And that's why we get really comfortable at the Prancing Pony, and we go and we hang out in the common room, and we start singing songs and telling stories and losing track of everything, because everything's fine. And then the ringwraiths are going to attack. Right, so um, I know the ringwraiths don't attack the inn, but but again, they're there, right? They are they 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 have invaded. They are invading Bree. Um, so in some ways, Bree, the role that Bree plays in the story, I'm not saying that Bree doesn't count as as a mortal realm, but the role that it plays in the story is to sort of show um, the realm of the Shire, like the Black Riders in the Shire, how these um, how these these quiet small places like the Shire and like Bree are being invaded, are, are being taken over by these outside forces. Not taken over by these outside forces. That's a really clumsy way of saying it. Um, that this world is, in, is intruding on them. And ultimately, if things aren't changed, it's, it's, it's going to stomp on them. Um, this is actually one of the things that I thought was a really profound change uh, in Peter Jackson's Fellowship of the Ring film. Um, I think it's it's defensible what he did, um, and it, it works, I think, in the context of the film. But the way that he changed the Prancing Pony in Brie and made it dark and scary, um, I mean, like, visibly dark and dirty and scary and alien, um, instead of warm, comforting, and so much like home that they forget themselves. That was a huge change, and again, it, it works, but the story is doing something very different in the movie at that point than the story in the book is doing, I think, because of that. Anyway. Um, okay. Um, let's see. Um... Yeah, Brennan says you couldn't imagine Frodo singing "The Cow Jumped Over the Moon" uh, in the movie. In no, 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 you really couldn't. Um, uh, yeah, well, 
Okay, so talking about the poem here, it's just a setup for what I really want to talk about. So now that we've been having class for like an hour and 20 minutes and we have 10 minutes left, now I want to start talking about the real subject of our class here tonight. Okay, it seems like the right time, I think, to move into really the heart uh, of, of our discussion here tonight. Um, I want to look at Helm's Deep. Keep this poem in mind. This poem is sort of our, our, our theme um, of our discussion of the Rohirrim. Um, keep this poem and its phrasing in mind, and we'll come back to it. Let's go to Helm's Deep. Men of that land called it Helm's Deep, after a hero of old wars who had made his refuge there. There upon its spur stood high walls of ancient stone, and within them was a lofty tower. Men said that in the far-off days of the glory of Gondor, the sea kings had built here this fastness with the hands of giants. The Hornburg, it was called, for a trumpet sounded upon the tower echoed in the deep behind, as if armies long forgotten were issuing to war from caves beneath the hills. We have a place which is associated with legends. Um... It is, on the one hand, a very real place that they are going to. It's perfectly mundane, in one sense. Um, this is not a magic place, necessarily, um, but it is associated with legends. It's associated with Helm. Um, and, of course, we learn from the uh, appendices that, cause which tells the story of Helm um, in a, a fair amount of detail. This is called Helm's Deep, uh, because after a hero of old wars who had made his refuge there, doesn't mention in that passage that he made his refuge there futilely and died there. Um, that's um, would perhaps be a less encouraging element of that legend uh, to the people who are going here to defend it on this day. Um, but we have noticed legend upon legend. We have not only the legend of Helm, uh, who who had a horn which he let blow whenever he came out. Um, but we also have on top of that the even more ancient of the far-off days of the glory of Gondor, in which the sea kings, remember those sea kings stepping out of the mists that, that Aragorn looked like in that tableau description of him in Gandalf? Um, the far-off days of the glory of Gondor, the sea kings had built here this fastness with the hands of giants, this you know, sort of semi-mythic explanation of the Hornburg and the marvel of the Hornburg. Um, the implication here being that the people of Rohan cannot build towers as good as this. Um, they know that, you know, the, the, the craft which formed the Hornburg is something unduplicatable by them. So we have this sort of mythic impact of the, of, of the place on these two different levels. And the active recollection of these legends... Uh, a trumpet sounded upon the tower, echoed in the deep behind, as if armies long forgotten were issuing to war from caves beneath the hills. Now that's not going to happen, because they're dead, and dead armies don't come back to fight. Everybody knows that, and fortunately that's a rule which is true, like, almost 100% of the time. Okay, there are exceptions, but uh, most of the time... Uh, long-forgotten armies do not, in fact, issue to, ca to war from caves beneath the hills. Um, um, unusual data points involving the paths of the dead notwithstanding. Um, now, it's not just 
the land, however, which remembers Helm uh, and his armies, um, the people do also. Theoden says, What news of Arkenbrand? Word came yesterday that he was retreating hither with all that is left of the best riders of Westfold, but he has not come. I fear that he will not come now, said Aemir. Our scouts have gained no news of him, and the enemy fills all the valley behind us. I would that he had escaped, said Theoden. He was a mighty man. In him lived again the valor of Helm the Hammerhand. But we cannot await him here. We must draw all our forces now behind the walls. By the way, Helm the Hammerhand is an awesome name. Uh, Tolkien is great with his names, but, you know, if you get a nickname, um, the Hammerhand is a pretty darn good one, especially when it alliterates with your name. Uh, Helm the Hammerhand is pretty awesome. Um, And um, I always loved the character of Arkenbrand, which is kind of funny, because he, like, has no lines, uh, and is in by any measure, a really, really minor character in The Lord of the Rings. Um, but I always loved uh, Arkin Brand, and I did because of that sentence. Um, in him lived again the valor of Helm the Hammerhand. And even notice the poignant use of the past tense here. Um, Theoden is speaking of him as if he's dead. He's assuming he's dead. I would that he had escaped, meaning I think he hasn't escaped. Um, he was a mighty man. Uh, you know, rest his soul. In him lived again the valor of Helm the Hammerhand. Um, so we are in Arkenbrand lamenting the passing of that valor which recalled the valor of old. Um, the end of the Battle of Helm's Deep is incredibly awesome. Um, two moments at the very end that I would particularly draw attention to. Um, the people are getting... They're, they're losing, right? Saruman is winning, especially with that devilry that he has, um, which I suspect of being a cannon, by the way, and not just a bomb like was depicted in the, in the films. In, in particular, I mean, as we will... Uh, um, the you know the gate that Aragorn is standing on in this next passage I'm talking about gets blasted down, um, but anyway, um, and there is textual evidence for a cannon. By golly, uh, I'll give it to you because <laughs> I did include it there in that passage. Um, but there is clearly a projectile element of the devilry uh, that uh, that Saruman has brought. Um, there was a roar and a blast of fire. The archway of the gate above which he had stood a moment before crumbled and crashed in smoke and dust. The barricade was scattered as if by a thunderbolt. Cannon, Ed. It's a cannon. A projectile bomb was just shot from the army uh, and blasted out the gate. Thank you. Anyway. Um, uh, <laughs> so... Um, uh, Back to Aragorn. As we're reading this, think about a little bit about the conversation we were having last time about the making of myth. Uh, the winning of the Battle of Helm's Deep is, I think, a, a very powerful mythic moment uh, in the Two Towers. And these two moments are the moments that really seal it, and watch how Tolkien does it. Um, watch the kinds of signals that he sends to the reader. 
Why do you look out? Do you wish to see the greatness of our army? We are the fighting Uruk-hai. I looked out to see the dawn, said Aragorn. What of the dawn, they jeered. We are the Uruk-hai. We do not stop the fight for night or day, for fair weather or for storm. We come to kill by sun or moon. What of the dawn? Now notice what's happening here, right? They are jeering at him because they believe that they understand what he's saying. Right When he says, I looked out to see the dawn, they hear him as mocking them. Because everybody knows that orcs don't like the sunlight. So, a very understandable rationale for defenders in this kind of a case, when they're defending against an army largely of orcs, uh, would be, if we can just hold out till daylight, we'll be okay. Right, Because the orcs are going to fade in the daylight. They will, they will weaken. Um, and we'll at least be able to hold out into the day. They might even fall back and wait to resume the attack at night, so we'll have you know a day to recover and help to try to rebuild our defenses and stuff. Maybe even they will weaken enough to enable us to do a counterattack and to rout them. Um, so that seems to be what the orcs are believing Aragorn has in his mind when he says, I looked out to see the dawn. They're jeering at him as if he were the one jeering at them, right? Hey, the sun is coming up, boys. You're in trouble now. And they're like, pfft. We're not in trouble. We're the fighting Uruk-hai. What of the dawn? We disregard the dawn. We don't care about the light. No one knows what the new day shall bring him, said Aragorn. Get you gone, ere it turn to your evil. So that's not what Aragorn was thinking. He's not saying, Aha, here comes the sun, you guys are done. No, he's saying, No one knows what the new day shall bring him. Something is coming. The dawn has arrived, and things are going to change. I know this, because I am Aragorn, and I am foresighted. Get you gone, ere it turn to your evil. Always loved that line. Uh, the warning, right? He is in an absurd position. Uh, his defensive positions are nearly overrun. He is massively outnumbered. His side has lost. It looks like it's just a matter of time, minutes maybe an hour or two before they are completely broken in and massacred. Um, this is the end game, uh, and Aragorn and his side have lost. So what does he do? He comes out to the gate and he threatens them all. Get you gone ere it turn to your evil. I advise you, I strongly recommend that you leave before you're all destroyed. <laughs> Get down or we will shoot you from the wall, they cried. This is no parley. You have nothing to say. You're just talking up there, right? I thought you were coming out to parley. I thought maybe you were going to surrender. Maybe you wanted to negotiate since you've obviously lost, right? Um, but no, you have nothing to say. I have still this to say, answered Aragorn. No enemy has yet taken the Hornburg. Depart or not one of you will be spared. Not one will be left alive to bring back tidings to the north. You do not know your peril. Really? That is the most uh, amazingly presumptuous thing to say to an apparently victorious army um, ever. But now notice the sternness of Aragorn's speech. His, you know, the way that Tolkien does his dialogue here. You do not know your peril. No, not one will be left alive to take back tidings to the north. Um, he is predicting the complete massacre of the apparently victorious army. You do not know your peril. Then now notice the narrator gives us an important 
directive here, an important cue. So great a power and royalty was revealed in Aragorn as he stood there alone above the ruined gates before the host of his enemies that many of the wild men paused and looked back over their shoulders to the valley, and some looked up doubtfully at the sky. There, the wild men take him seriously. They hear it. The orcs laugh with loud voices. They don't care. They totally disregard Aragorn. What of the dawn? They don't care. That's the tone they've already struck, right? Um, we don't. We come to kill by sun or moon. We do not stop the fight for night or day. That's not what Aragorn was talking about, right? He is speaking of something higher, of something greater. There is, of course, a literal thing behind his words. I looked out to see the dawn. The sun is, in fact, rising, right? What Aragorn is saying to them, though, is that he is layering that simple fact with a greater significance, with, in fact, a layer of prophecy. The rising of the sun on this particular day, he says forebodes a change in your fortunes. Just as the sun is now rising, the darkness passing, and day coming again, a couple of you were quoting uh, the Silmarillion earlier on in some of your comments that I didn't get a chance to read. Um, but, but you know, that's happening on multiple levels as well. He is prophesying, just flat prophesying, that day is, that day is, that w- with the rising of the sun, the night is passing, and they are going to be completely obliterated, just as the gloom of night is obliterated by the rising of the sun. The uruk have said, again, speaking of the literal sun and the literal day, what of the dawn? We don't care. We have no regard for the rising of the sun. We only come to kill. Um, I know you have no regard for the sun, boys, um, but that's their mistake. The wild men are a little bit better off than the orcs. They do have regard for the sun, and they listen, they hear Aragorn's words, they perceive the power and royalty that is revealed in Aragorn, and they have second and even third thoughts about what's going to happen. We hear the authority in this person's voice. This has the impact of a prophecy. And so they're looking over their shoulders. Is another army behind us? They look up at the... So Maybe that's just uh, thinking... They're not thinking anything supernatural, right? Maybe they're just thinking, oh, do they have allies that are going to come in and trap us from behind, maybe? But then they're looking up doubtfully at the sky as if they're all going to get struck by lightning or something like that. Or maybe an army of eagles will show up, but probably not, because that doesn't usually happen. Um, But... uh, But anyway, they're looking up doubtfully at the sky. That shows they clearly are thinking about supernatural things, right? Um, They are are recognizing some power is at work here, right? Um, There is something besides this simple um, mundane thing. They are perceiving the other level of this conversation, and that of which Aragorn is speaking with great authority, that the orcs are totally deaf to. They laugh at him with loud voices and uh, shoot at him as he leaps down. Then the they blow the horn of Helm. With that, all that heard that sound trembled. 
Many of the orcs cast themselves on their faces and covered their ears with their claws. Back from the deep the echoes came, blast upon blast, as if on every cliff and hill a mighty herald stood. But on the walls men looked up, listening with wonder, for the echoes did not die. Ever the horn-blasts wound on among the hills. Nearer now and louder they answered to one another, blowing fierce and free. Helm! Helm! the riders shouted. Helm is arisen and comes back to war! Helm for Theoden king! And with that shout the king came. His horse was white as snow. Golden was his shield and his spear was long. At his right hand was Aragorn, Elendil's heir. Behind him rode the lords of the house of Eorl the young. Light sprang in the sky. Night departed. Forth, Eorlingas! With a cry and a great noise they charged. Down from the gates they roared. Over the causeway they swept, and they drove through the hosts of Isengard as a wind among the grass. Behind them from the deep came the stern cries of men issuing from the caves, driving forth the enemy. Out poured all the men that were left upon the rock, and ever the sound of blowing horns echoed in the hills. That's really good. Right. Um, <laughs> it doesn't want me to stop. Um, but no, I do want to pause. I do want to pause. Um, notice how, again, we have... Tolkien is so good at operating on multiple levels. Um, you know, he... Remember that famous passage in the foreword where he talks about cordially disliking allegory because he he prefers applicability which resides in the freedom of the reader rather than the purposed domination of the author um, that is he doesn't like to push his readers to a particular meaning um, he's not trying to uh, he doesn't like to sort of slam them in the face with a particular message um, that's why he says that it doesn't have any meaning or message in the intention of its author. Does that mean that his story is meaningless? No. Um, and certainly there are... Obviously it has meaning. Um, but he, this is a, a great example of where we, we, we clearly have this symbolic level, I will say, though I'm always uncomfortable with that word. Um, there's a symbolic level here, too, but it is very delicately handled. Um, his uh, his uh, his sentences: "Light sprang in the sky, night departed." Has these plain double meanings, especially in the context of Aragorn's prophecy, right um, uh, about the dawn. Uh, and nobody knowing what the new day will bring and, you know, go where it turned to your evil. Light has sprung into the sky, night departed, and it turns out the orcs do care about the light, actually. And although they don't respond to the physical sun, they are indeed going to quail in the light that breaks forth on this day. Um, uh... Notice the way that he modulates, you know, it's a, it's a metaphor that I've been using. Um, note how he modulates into this sort of epic mode. Um, so many things that I could go through and highlight. I don't want to talk about all of them. I'm already holding, uh, I'm already holding class later than I planned anyhow. Um, Back from the deep the echoes came, blast upon blast, as if on every cliff and hill a mighty herald stood. Notice how that recalls the legends that we've already heard. 
about Helm, right? About how the 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 legendary associations that this place has, both with the sea kings of old and with the mighty hero of old legends, Helm the Hammerhand, who who made his last stand here. But there's also that there's this sort of almost doubt, right? It, it's recalling them. Um, it's being compared. We're using a simile, right? The echoes are are, are bouncing off the hills. As if on every cliff and hill a mighty herald stood. There, there's not actually a mighty herald. The old armies are not, in fact, emerging uh, to fight the battle with Theoden King, right? But then they listen with wonder, for the echoes don't die. Ever the horn blasts wound on among the hills, nearer now and louder they answered to one another, blowing fierce and free. And the riders are, are overcome with this. The legends are, are coming to life. Helm is arisen and comes back to war. Right? The, the echoes are not dying. There are horns blowing from the hills. Those armies of Helm have in fact returned. Helm for Theoden king, and then Theoden comes, and he himself is now uh, superimposed. Right? We have again that those that, those two different levels here. On the one hand, this is you know Theoden king, the 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 the, the you know the withered. Uh, old king of Rohan, but at the same time, he is more than that. He is with a sh- with that shout. The king came. I love just the use of the king. Right? He has assumed this archetypal role. He is not just Theoden, son of Thangal. He is the king um, with the legendary force of his in- of 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 his people's history behind him, uh, with the armies of Helm apparently rising, and he himself recalling Aeol the young. His horse was white as snow, golden was his spear, and it was his shield, and his spear was long, just like Aeol the young, right? And the lords of the house of Aeol the young, recalled by name, are behind him, and at his right hand was Aragorn, Elendil's heir, right? Not the heir of Isildur, the heir of Elendil, the sea king himself, right? The king who come, who came over the the, the sea, um, and you know, so and you know, the the one who you know, the ones who built this fastness with the hands of giants. All of those legends are coming and focusing in this one charge. Forth, Eorlingas, and down the gates they roared, and they drive through the host of Isengard. How, as a wind among the grass? There's that wind in the meadow again. Um, except this wind among the grass has a pretty significant impact here, doesn't it? Um, as they sweep through, driving forth the enemy, um, and ever the sound of blowing horns echoed in the hills. So have the armies of Helm arisen and come back to war to fight for Theoden King? Yeah, they have, right? No, not literally. I mean, that happens later, right? Uh, again, that's a uh, these dead armies can't come back and fight uh, like the other ones do in the Return of the King. However, they have because who is leading them? Arkenbrand, the one in whom the valor of Helm the Hammerhand uh, has returned again, right? Um, Helm lives on in Arkenbrand. The armies of Helm live on in the in in in, in the forces of the men of Westfold who are coming to release them again. We have, on the one hand, a, an exciting, a climactic, but a mundane thing, right? They are being relieved by another army, uh, which Gandalf has gathered. Gandalf himself points out, you know, w- w- they want to attribute this to magic, right? Um, you are mighty in wizardry, Gandalf the Grey, says, says Theoden, and Gandalf says, 
you know, maybe, but I haven't shown it yet, right? All I did was uh, make use of the speed of shadow facts, right? I, I mean, I, I, I rode around really fast and talked to a bunch of people, um, gave a bunch of orders, but I, I actually didn't do anything. I didn't, didn't uh, perform any magic or anything, right? Um, what has happened is a perfectly mundane thing. Gandalf went and gathered reinforcements and came and brought them in in the nick of time, right? Hooray! But at the same time, something legendary, something mythic has occurred. We have this, these echoes, literal echoes, of Helm and the armies of Helm, um, juxtaposed upon Theoden and Arkenbrand um, in this moment. We have these, this story that we are watching, the story that these characters are in, not only has recalled the legends and built upon the legends, but has established now a new legend, has taken its place among those legends, now lives also in that legendary world. Uh, we have both of these two things happening at the same time. Remember the words that uh, Aragorn exchanges with Eothine, um, one of Eomir's guys, um, way back in uh, chapter 2. Halflings, laughed the rider that stood beside Eomir. Halflings! They are only a little people in old songs and children's tales out of the north. Do we walk in legends or on the green earth in the daylight? A man may do both, said Aragorn, for not we, but those who come after, will make the legends of our time. The green earth, say you? That is a mighty matter of legend, though you tread it under the light of day. A man may do both, for not we, but those who come after us, will make the legends of our time. And at Helm's Deep, we see them doing exactly that. Uh, doing both. Both walking in legends and on the green earth in the daylight. Right? Um, so, we come back to the poem for a second. Remember the poem. I've already recalled the poem. Right? With the wind in the grass there. Um, the simile, the rather conspicuous simile that is used um, to describe Theoden's charge through the orcs there. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Uh, Alyssa says, I just gained a whole new appreciation for behind him rode the lords of the house of Aeorl the Young. Not only literal, yeah, not only his own thanes, right, um, of his household, of his, of his family, um, but, yeah, Behind him is also figuratively riding all of the lords, including Errol the Young and Helm the Hammerhand and all of the rest of them. Um, absolutely. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, good. Um, yeah. Um, Saris uh, points out that the story also answers the, line, the last lines of the poem, you know, the, the, uh, the, about the going behind the hills into shadow, the orcs go into the Huorn forest, uh, and uh, who shall gather them uh, from, uh, from, from, from the wood, pointing out the, uh, the, the wood, which in that case is burning with anger. Um, yes, though it isn't dead wood burning, of course, I, w- I, w- I would add, Sarah. Um, yeah, I would say here that... Um, You'll notice that the, the sort of depressing title I've given to today's class, The Dead Wood Burning, um, and it may sound like a sort of a slighting title uh, to use to be talking about the Battle of Helm's Deep, as if Theoden were only dead wood, um, and, you know, at the end of the day, this not being a really big deal. Um, but I don't think the poem itself suggests that that isn't a big deal. Um, the point is not that... Um, the point of the poem is that these things are lost, that 
the stream of human experience only flows in one direction. You can't, you know, Errol the Young, where is he? Gone. He's gone. But there's a little bit of irony there. Um, so men still sing in the evenings, said, Ar- said Aragorn. Um, so where has Errol gone? He's gone. I mean, he's dead. There's his barrow right over there. Right, You can find his bones if you wanted to. Um, Errol isn't Errol the Young isn't walking through that door, right? He's not, um, he is not, uh, uh, returning. But, he's gone into legend. And the legends do live. Uh, you know, do we, do we walk in legends or on the green earth in the daylight? A man may do both, Aragorn says. Um, and it is true. Um, so, who can gather the smoke from the dead wood burning? Nobody can. You can't reconstruct it. Um, but you can sing about it, and the burning of the wood. Um, though the wood is itself consumed and can never return, the burning of the wood um, can st- you know, still make light, can still bring light and heat, um, whether it be light like the red fire glowing, that, uh, that, that warm, um, you know, mead hall fire pit-like fire, or whether it be a much greater and brighter flame, um, like the beacons of Gondor. Nevertheless, um, that that is still, you know, both both flames are flames that are remembered. Again, you, you can't reconstruct the wood. Um, but it's also not completely lost, certainly not as long as people are singing about it. Um, and we do see, um, does this mean, you know, in this passage, has Helm returned? Has the smoke been gathered back? No, no. Helm is gone. It's not actually the armies of Helm, but it's the memory of the armies of Helm, and it is the armies of Arkenbrand, who are themselves passing into legend, because, as Aragorn reminds us, not we, but those who come after will make the legends of our time. Um, There's an irony in that conversation, right? Aragorn is sitting here talking to to Eothine. Both of them, Eothine doesn't come up again by name, but presumably he's with Aemir and there at Helm's Deep, right? Um, so both Aragorn and the dude he's talking to are going to play their part in mighty matters of legend, right? The the fight at Helm's Deep, uh, uh, it, more so the ride of the Rohirrim to Gondor, uh, and the battle. Uh, on the fields before Mundberg, these are going to become mighty matters of legend. Uh, the men who come after will make the legends of our time, um, and those will be among them. Theoden, Helm, Errol the Young, they're all going to be up there in those legends. So, um, so no, those people are gone. That song is about mortality, but there's a kind of there's a kind of hope to it. Um, there is a kind of continuity that it does sort of invite. And I actually think this is one of the reasons why the poem doesn't mention Aeorl by name. Aragorn tells us it's about Aeorl the Young, and I don't see any obvious reason to think that Aragorn is just flat wrong about it. But, um, but, but again, the poem doesn't mention Aeorl. And I think that that's important. Um, because, of course, that same poem could be sung about Theoden as well. Again, it sounds like Theoden as well. Um, anyway, um, 
Daniel points out that Treebeard says the same, that still the, the, the last march of the Ent of the Ents may still be worth a song. Um, yeah, yeah, very good, Daniel. Treebeard is thinking in a very similar way. Um, and, uh, you know, they're hoping to do some practical good. We may help out the other people before, before the end, right? Um, even if we can't preserve ourselves, um, because they know they're doomed, right? The Ents are gonna die because they can't reproduce. They have no endings, right? They have no endwives. And so it's only a matter of time. It might be a long time, because they live for a long time, but it's only a matter of time before the ants, all of them, finally pass away. Um, but maybe before the end, we can do some good for the other people. So that's the practical. But also, Daniel, it may be worth a song also. And that might also be a be a different thing. And yes, Joshua, Sam, and Fredo are going to speak about this, and we'll come back to this. Um, you will find this is one of a couple of ways in which things in Book 4 are picking up on the things that happened um, earlier on. There is um, more symmetry, I think, to Books 3 and 4 than uh, people often think about. Not, not exact symmetry. It's not like they're directly um, and evenly parallel with each other. But they they kind of interact with each other, I think, in some pretty interesting ways. Anyway, I'm going to let you guys go. Um, I've kept you long and irresponsibly enough. Thank you for your patience with me and my ramblings here tonight. Um, uh, next time we will finish book three, um, and we will focus primarily upon Saruman and Isengard, um, especially as it exists in contrast to what we've seen here with, you know, in the last couple of classes with Treebeard and Gandalf and uh, and uh, Rohan and these uh, mighty matters of legend uh, that are uh, that have been happening here before our eyes. So anyway, thanks again for joining me, and uh, I appreciate all of your comments and questions. Sorry again that I uh, didn't get through all of the. Uh, um, all of your comments and everything. I wish I could address everything. There are a lot of you here, so uh, I've tried to touch on as many of the things that I can. So thanks very much, everybody. And for those of you who can make it, I will see you on Thursday. If not, I'll have the recording up as soon as I can. So thanks very much, everybody. Good night. <laughs>